to heal on the Sabbath. We're in Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke 14. Uh, we're going through the Bible verse by verse, expository teaching. We teach the whole counsel. We teach the good and the bad. We teach the word of God, the engrafted word of God, which is able to build you up and to make you wise. And this is not worldly wisdom. This is God's wisdom. You don't see things the way the world sees things. There's no way because you are a what? New creature. You're a new creature in Christ. Father, we pray you open our ears and hearts to your word that we might grow and learn. May your Holy Spirit just show us the things of Christ in Jesus name. Amen. Verse chapter 14, verse one. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. They washed him closely. This is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They washed him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answered, answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus always asked a question, already knowing the answer. But they kept silent. And he took him and he healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, which of you having a donkey or, or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. You know, he was talking about repentance last week. Instead of bringing them to repentance, Jesus severe denunciation of the Pharisees and scribes only provoked them to retaliation. And they plotted against him. The Pharisees who invited Jesus to his home for dinner also invited a man who had dropsy. This is a painful disease in which uh, because it's a kidney problem, uh, because it's, it's a disorder uh, of the kidney and you can see it on a patient's face because the, fa the patient's faith is usually bloated. The dropsy is a disease, a disease pro produced by accumulation of water in, in various parts of the body. Very distressing and very commonly uh, incurable. The tissues will, will fill with water. How heartless of the Pharisees. Heartless. To use this man as a tool to accomplish their wicked plans to trap Jesus. Their heartless treatment of this man was far, far worse than the Lord's healing on the Sabbath day. He knew they were watching him and he didn't care. This afflicted man would have been invited. This afflicted man would not have been invited to such an important dinner where it was not that the Pharisees wanted, they wanted to use him as bait to catch Jesus. He was planted there. They knew that Jesus could not be in the presence of human suffering very long without doing something about it. If he ignored this afflicted man, then he was accused with, without having compassion. But if he healed him, then he was openly violating the Sabbath. And they could accuse him. They put the 
drop sized man right in front of the master, right in front of Jesus. He could not avoid the man. And then they waited for the trap to spring. They wanted to see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath. Now keep in mind that Jesus had already violated their Sabbath, their Sabbath traditions on at least seven different occasions. On the Sabbath day, he cast out a demon, Luke 4, 31 through 37. We covered that. Healed with fever, Luke 4. He allowed the disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath, Luke 6. He healed a lame man, John 5. He healed a man with paralyzed hands, Luke 6. He delivered a crippled woman who was suffered by a demon, Luke 13. And he healed a man born blind on John chapter 9. But we do not know, but they did not know that their whole scheme would backfire. Luke shows more healing on the Sabbath more frequently than any other other gospels. Jesus seemed to have favored the Sabbath as a day of showing his act of mercy. Jesus healed the man and let him go, knowing that the Pharisee's house was not a place or a safe place for this man to be. He healed a man, and he said, get away from them people. They're not a good influence for you. Instead of, instead of providing evidence against Jesus, the man provided evidence against the Pharisees. For he was exhibit A of the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the man being healed before their very eyes, and they still rejected Christ. Just because you see a miracle, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to come to Christ. The Antichrist is going to come with what? Lying signs and wonders. The Antichrist is going to deceive the world. The Lord knew too much about this legalistic crowd to escape these Pharisees. He knew that on the Sabbath, they would deliver the farm animals from danger. So why not, permit, now why not permit him to deliver a man who had made, who was made, who was made in the image of God? If you can deliver your animals, why can't you deliver the man with dropsy who was made in the image of God? Seemingly, they were suggesting that animal was more important than people. They legalistic tradition was more important than a person. A day was more important than a person. It's always good to do good, no matter what day it is. It is tragic that some people, even today, love their pets more than their family. They love their pets more than their family members, or even the lost world. But Jesus exposed these false Pharisees and scribes. They claimed to be defending they claim to be defending God's Sabbath laws, but when in reality they were denying God by the way they abused people and, and they were accusing Jesus. This is a big difference. There's a big difference between protecting God's truth and promoting your tradition. That's a big difference. Protecting, they said they, they said they were protecting God's truth. No, they wasn't. They were promoting their what? Traditions. 
The Bible said they held their peace. They were silent. They could not say it was, it was not lawful. They couldn't say it was unlawful, for the law did not forbid it. The law did not forbid doing good on the Sabbath. So the Bible said they held their peace. It was, it was lawful to save an ox on the Sabbath. It was also to save a life of a man on the Sabbath. To this, the Jews had nothing to answer. If you can show mercy to an animal, Jesus says, you can show mercy to a person. Wow. When their own interests were involved, they would do whatever they wanted to on the, on the Sabbath day when it involved them. When their interests were in mind, but anybody else, oh, he's breaking the Sabbath. It is always the right time to do good. Once again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Once again, he pointed out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he called them many times hypocrites. They appear righteous on the outside, but inside they were full of hypocrisy and iniquity and dead men's bones, and Jesus told them. See, like there was always somebody mad at Jesus. Because Jesus told you straight up, man, he, he's not going to. And I tell you, if you're a preacher, you got to tell it like it is. You know, it, it don't matter. You got to tell it like it is. Amen. Jesus said, if you were to rescue an animal on that day, you ought to help a human. The people were watching him closely. Everywhere Jesus went, people just were watching him. It suggests that the Pharisees, the Pharisees brought this man in order to trap Jesus. A Pharisee normally would not have even, they wouldn't, they would avoid a person like this with, with dropsy, with a disease like this. But on this occasion, they brought the man to see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath so they could accuse him. That's low down, boy. The wicked people. They couldn't give an answer, but such would such would condemn themselves. They would have condemned themselves if they had given an answer. That's so what the Bible said they kept silent. And that was good. Sometimes if you don't have an answer, you know, whatever they say, they were going to condemn themselves, incriminate themselves. So the Bible said they kept silent. But now the Pharisees had learned that they can never win an argument with Jesus. Now, if you get into an argument with Jesus, now who do you think is going to win? These guys, they think, they think they should know by now you can't win with Jesus. So what they do, they, they have to keep silent because many times Jesus would silence the scribes and the Pharisees. He would shut them, he would shut them up and what they would do would not even speak because they had nothing to say. Some people's religious, like the Pharisees, and they impress people. But they never, they never impressed Jesus because he could see right through them. He could see the heart. You know, God sees the heart. So the Pharisees were hypocritical. Jesus healed the man. Pharisees should have rejoiced, but they didn't. Some people you just can't help. Even Jesus could not help everybody. Verse 7 said, we're going to take the lowly place. Check this out. So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how 
they chose the best seats, saying to them, you know how the Pharisees and scribes, they chose the best seats in the synagogues, right? And people passed by saying, Rabbi, didn't impress Jesus at all. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best seats, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? You go to a feast, you sit in the best seat. Then somebody come along beside you. He's more honorable than you. Say, hey, man, get up. You're in my seat. Ooh, that'd be humiliating. Anyway. But when you are invited, verse 10, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when you are invited, you come. He may say to you, friend, get up, go, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humble and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In the New Testament time, the closer you got to the host, the higher you stood on the social ladder and more attention you would receive from others. Naturally, many people rushed to the table with, with the doors were open because they wanted to be important. They wanted to sit in the best seat. Jesus advised people not to rush for the best seat at the feast. People today are in danger to raise, they are in danger, danger today to raise their social status by being the right people, dressing for success or driving the right car. They're trying to impress others with what they have. People don't really care what you got, be honest with you. People are aiming today for prestige. They're looking for a place where you, instead of aiming for prestige in the church, especially, we ought to be looking for a place to serve. We are to seek, we are not to seek places of honor. Service is more important in God's kingdom than status. Humility. Humility. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's like the opposite of the world, you know. Uh, humility, if you know you have it, they say you've just lost it. Huh. It is well been said that humility is not thinking little of yourselves. It is simply not thinking of yourselves at all. Jesus is the greatest example of humility, and we would do well to ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to uh, imitate him. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's humility. Therefore, God highly exalted him and given him a name. That is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Those on heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. And every time would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
They were just seeking their best seats, you know, so they could be seen. When I was back on the East Coast, people would sit up front, you know, in, in the best seats so people could see them. Sitting in the right seat doesn't make you any more spiritual than anybody else. Proverbs 25, 6 through 8, do not exalt yourself in the presence of a king and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is, but it is better that, that he say to you, come up here. than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince. Whom your eyes have seen. What is he talking about? Self-exaltation. So many guys come over the years, want to go into the ministry and want to exalt themselves. Listen, you don't want to exalt yourself. Let God raise you up. Let God raise you up, man. Or you want to, oh, but I came from California, man. I want to teach, man. You know, God sent me and I went to uh, uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College, man. Okay. I'm glad you did. Okay, I'm not knocking that. Good. If you want to carry. But hey, here we test people, man. You know, we don't lay hands on people too suddenly. We, we don't do it. I, I'm not going to let nobody stand behind this pulpit unless I trust him. I don't care who it is. And I don't care how much degrees he's got. I don't care how good looking he got. I don't care what kind of car he's got. If you stand behind this pulpit, that means that I trust him and he has my blessing. That's right. So self-promotion, self-promotion, which the Lord cannot tolerate. Oh, Pastor, I've noticed I got a B.A. and I got a master's degree in divinity and all this. And I'm an expert at eschatology and all this. And I says, OK, well, I need some yard work I done next Saturday. You be here a ton of <laughs> you be here a ton of clock. Let's do some yard work. They never even show up. They said, well, you know, God called me to teach, brother. Well, the greatest person in the church is supposed to be the pastor. The greatest servant of the church is supposed to be the pastor. We're here to serve you. We don't expect you to serve us. So self-exhortation, self-promotion, which the Lord cannot tolerate, cannot tolerate. It's the, it's, it's the end results. The end result is you're going to be humble. Let the Lord promote you. Some people try to give the appearance of a humility. If a people try to give the appearance of humility, they ain't humble. Now, some people try to give the appearance of humility to manipulate others. Think humility means, some people think humility is putting themselves down. True, humil- true humble people compare themselves only to Christ. Realizing that they are sinful and they realize their limitations. Humility is a path. Humility is a path to promotion in the kingdom of God. Self-exaltation leads to dishonor, but humility will lead to honor. So. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. He was humble. He said, my yoke is easy, burden is light. If you know who you are in Christ, you don't have to promote yourself and you don't have to compare yourself. You don't have to prove yourself. You have already been accepted in the beloved. Verse 12, and they, and they said to him who invited, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends or your, or your brothers or, or relatives nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back. 
and you and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the of the just. Maybe they won't pay you, but God will repay you. Maybe some things you do for people in this life, they hurt you, man. <laughs> Sometimes you give you all and people still hurt, hurt you. But you're not expecting to get reward from people. He said, you're going to get your reward repaid at the resurrection of the just. Because you have done it for God's sake and you've done it for God's kingdom, God is going to be, he's going to repay you. Go and get the main, the people that are deprived of members of their bodies, the arms, who they've lost their arms or their legs. They can't work and get support. They can't work and get finances. Go invite them. He spoke of eternal rewards. He spoke of eternal rewards for those who favor the poor. God keeps account of all things that is done in his namesake and will reward every believer at the judgment seat of Christ. Every act of kindness will be rewarded in the future time when you meet Christ. His point here is that inviting one's friends and relatives cannot be classified as a spiritual act of true of true charity. Inviting your friends and relatives is not really an act of true charity. Unconditional love is given to people who have absolutely no ability to pay you back. Go get the poor buying blame. Get, get them guys. They can't get nothing. They can't pay you back. Even though there be no reward in this life, God will, over, God will not overlook what you have done for his name. Verse 15, now when one of these, those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, a certain man gave her Great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all now are ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me be excused. And another said, I have five yoke of oxen and I have and I am going to test him. I ask you to have me be excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house being angry. That's rough, man. You ever had a feast like that when you invite a whole bunch of folks? We've done that over the years, like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Cook a whole bunch of food, man, and, and little by little, people start, the, the phone start ringing. They say, they say, they say I can't come, man. Uh, I can't do this. And, I, and I'm thinking, I told my wife, we got all this food. I said, they told me they was going to come. They didn't come. We got all this food. It says here, <laughs> it says here that the master of the house was angry and said to his servants, go out quick into the streets and the lanes and the city and bring in the poor and the maimed. And the lame and the blind. 
And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there's room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Gentiles, Jew and Gentiles, bring anybody. For I say to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my supper. In Jesus' day, you were, if Jesus, in Jesus' day, when you were the invite, invited guest to dinner, you told them the day, but not the exact time of the meal, but you told them in advance that you was going to have this dinner. The host had to show how many people that was going to come to the dinner so they would know how many animals to slaughter to prepare for the food, for sufficient food. But just before the feast began, the host came, the host sent his servants to each of the guests to tell them the banquet was ready and they should come. In other words, each of these guests, this parable had already agreed, each guest right here that they that was invited had already agreed to attend the banquet before time. And the host expected them to be there because he gave them plenty of warning. But instead of eagerly coming to the feast, all the guests insulted the host by refusing to attend. And they all gave feeble excuses to defend that they changed of plans. The first, the first guest, he had to go and see a piece of real estate. He had purchased. The man would have many opportunities to examine the land after the feast. Anybody who buy a piece of property sight unseen, is something wrong with that person. You're going to go buy some property and don't even know what it even looks like. The man said, I must go see it. He had many opportunities before the feast to buy, to see it. And since the purchase was already made, there was no urgency. The land could have waited. He could have waited to see the land after the banquet. It's just an excuse. The second man also made a purchase. Ten oxen that he was anxious to prove. Again, who would purchase animals without first testing them first? Not many customers in our modern world would buy a used car without test driving it. Would you go buy some land or some oxen and not even check it out first? The third guest really had no excuse at all since they involved so much. This involved so much elaborate preparation. Jewish weddings were, were never a surprise. So this man knew well in advance that he was going to take a wife. Well, he could have brought a widow. I mean, we're sorry. He knew well in advance that he was going to take a wife that being... This being the case, he should not have agreed to the feast in the first place. None of them should have agreed to the feast because they knew they couldn't make it. Since the Jewish men were invited, since only the Jewish men were invited to the banquet, the host did not expect the wife to come anyway. Having a wife could have kept the man from a battlefield. So many times the, the wives were not even invited. Of course, he was on the excuses. I think it was Billy Sunday who defined Billy Sunday who find, defined an excuse as the person who is good at excuses 
is usually no good for anything else. These three guests actually expected to get another invitation in the future, but that invitation never came. You invite folks, they don't show up. <laughs> I mean, you, you might be a little bit hesitant next time to invite them. Having prepared a great dinner for many guests, the host did not want the food to go to waste, so he sent his servants out to say, hey, go out and bring, go out and get anybody, get the blind, get, go out in the streets and the city and the highways and the hedges and tell them to come, come to my dinner. The outcasts, a lot of us, the homeless, the undesirable people, go get them and bring them. The kind of people that Jesus came to save, he said, go get them people. Not only did the host get other people to take the places assigned to the invited guests, but he also shut the door so that the excuse makers could not change their mind and come. They could not change their mind because it was too late. In fact, the host was very angry. We rarely think of God expressing judicial anger against those who reject his gracious invitation. God is giving an invitation right now to the world. Now, everybody is not going to respond to it. But the invitation, he said, Whoever, whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. For God so loved the world he gave. God is calling the world now, but everybody is not going to respond to the call. Amen. But the message of this parable applies to all lost sinners today. They still say, oh, God is saying all things already. Jesus has paid the price for your sins and died on the cross. He says, now come. There's nothing, there's nothing more to be done for the salvation of your souls. For Jesus has finished the work, the redemption work on the cross when he died for your sins. The feast has been prepared. The invitation is free. And you are invited. That's what Jesus is saying right now to the world. Everybody's invited. Come. People today make the same mistake that the people made in the parable. They delay responding to the invitation. They said, one day I'll get around to it. I've had people tell me, when I get 80 years old, I'll think about it. That's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what people says. Amen. People today make the same mistake by not responding to God's invitation. They all settle for the second best. The second best of things of this life. Temporary things that are passing away. And boy, I tell you, the Bible said that's going to be weeping. Are we living for the temporary or are we living for the eternal? The Christian life is a, the Christian life is a, is a feast. It's a feast with the Lord. It's not a funeral. And all are invited to come. Each of us as believers must tell that message to the world. Come. Things are ready. God wants you to be in his house. There's room. He wants us to go in the streets and the, the highways and the byways into the world with that gospel and tell them that's been away. 
that you can be forgiven. The parable was the text of the late D.L. Moody preached this text right here. He preached this text. He talked about his text was excuses. It was given on November 23rd, 1899 in the Civic Auditorium in Kansas City. And Moody was a sick man as he preached. I must have, he said, I must have souls in Kansas City. He told the students at his school in Chicago. Never, never have I wanted so much to lead men and women to Christ as I do at this time. There was a throbbing in his chest and he had to hold on to the organ to keep from falling. But Moody bravely preached the gospel and some 50 people responded to Christ. The next day, Moody left for he left for home and a month later he died. Up to the very end, Moody was compelling people to come to Christ. Well, that's a cost, isn't it? Verse 25. Now the great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and do not hate his father or mother and wife and children or brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What? You mean to tell me that's a cost? Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that's a sacrifice? What? I thought it was an easy. No, it's not. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And know your cross is not your wife or your husband. He ain't talk, they, ain't your, they ain't your cross. He's talking about the cross of, suffer, of suffering. Of suffering. For which of you intended to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation, the foundation and is not able to finish, all who seek it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king is going to make war against another king? does not sit down first and consider whether he is able to, t- with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great far off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, that he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's a cost. He's saying that's a cost to being his disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor the dunghill, but men throw it out. He, he who has an ear, let him hear. He talked about a spiritual ear. When he said, he who has an ear, let him understand. He said, pay attention to what I've said. When Jesus left the Pharisees' house, you know, great crowds followed him, but he was, he was not impressed by the crowds. He knew that the most of, them, of the crowds were, they were not interested in spiritual things. So some wanted only to see miracles. Others heard that he fed the hungry and few hoped he would overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom, his earthly kingdom. But they were all expecting the wrong thing. Jesus turned to the multitudes and preached a sermon that deliberately, Jesus preached a sermon that deliberately thinned out the ranks. Sometimes you preach a sermon, you can thin them out. 
He made it clear that when it comes to personal discipleship, he is more interested in quality than quantity. In the matter of saving souls, he wanted his house to be filled. But in the matter of personal discipleship, he wants only those who are willing to pay the price. The question is, are you willing to pay the price? A disciple is a learner, one who attaches himself to his teacher. He's like an apprentice, one who he learns by watching and doing from his master. The word disciple was most common name. It's used 264 times in the gospel and in the book of Acts. Jesus seemed to make a distinction between salvation and discipleship. There's a, a difference between salvation and discipleship. Salvation is open to all who come to Christ by faith, while discipleship is for believers, is for believers willing to pay the price. Salvation means coming to the cross and trusting Christ, while discipleship means carrying the cross on a daily basis, sacrifice, self-denial, commitment. Jesus wanted as many sinners saved as possible, but he cautions us not to take discipleship lightly. And there are those three parables he gave. He made it clear that there's a price to pay. There's suffering and sometimes even rejection by the world or even family members if you're going to be my disciple. See, he said you got to be willing to forsake it all. Many Christians blend into the world to avoid the cost of standing up for Christ. They'll try to blend in with the world and they'll try to compromise. But Jesus said if a Christian loses his distinctiveness or his saltiness, they become worthless. Just as the salt flavor, it preserves food. We are to preserve the good in this world. We are to put flavor in people's lives. We are to preserve the good. We are to go out and let people see what a Christian looks like, what it acts like. This, this requires careful planning, willing sacrifice, willing sacrifice and commitment. But being a Christian fails, fails to be saltish. He or she fails to represent Christ in this world. When we fail to represent Christ, when we compromise, when we do things, when we fall into sin, we've lost our saltiness and we are worth nothing but be trampled on by men. That's what he said. To begin with, we must love Christ. He said being a disciple is, is supreme. We must love Christ supremely, even more than we love our own flesh and blood. The word hates means to love less. Our love for Christ must be so strong that we love our family members less. It means devotion to family must take second place to the devotion of Christ. He must be first in your life. That's what he's saying. What does it mean to carry a cross? It means to, it, daily identifying with Christ, his suffering, his death, his, his resurrection. It means dying to self. To your, dying to your own plans, dying to your own ambition, and a willingness to serve him as he, as he directs you. A cross is something we willingly accept from God apart as part of his will for our lives. Discipleship. The Christian who calls, you know, they say his noisy neighbor. 
That's not your cross. You know, because you got a bad neighbor. That's my neighbor's at cross. No, the cross means you disciples suffering. Salt is, salt is a preservative, and God's people in the world are, are helping to retard the growth of evilness in this world. Salt is also a purifying agent, antiseptic that makes things cleaner. It may sting when it touches the wound, but it helps to kill infection. Salt gives flavor to things. Sure it does. I like popcorn, you know. I'm just saying. You ever ate popcorn with no salt? Ooh. That's rough, man. Anyway. Anyway, uh, salt gives flavor to things. And, 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 and you know, salt, salt makes people thirsty. We look at people, people look at our lives and they say, boy, that's a Christian, man. He, you know, I was, I was using the illustration a while back when I was at work and I hit my hand with a, with a hammer. And I, a non-believer said, man, you didn't even curse. I know what I would have said. I said, I know what you would have said. <laughs> but, you know, God can use the little things that we didn't. He was amazed that I didn't curse. But we got the character. We had to, you know, lead people to Christ. So it would make people want what we have. Our modern day salt does not lose its flavor. But salt in Jesus' day was impure and could lose its flavor, especially if it came in contact with the earth, it could lose its flavor. And once the saltiness has gone, there's no way you can restore it. And the salt was thrown down into the streets, was walking on by man. When a disciple loses his Christian character, he is good for nothing and willing eventually to the walk as the world walks. Discipleship is serious business. Absolute surrender to Christ. Absolute. There's, no, there's never no compulsion to be. He's not going to force people to be a disciple. There's only one way of being a disciple, and that is by being fully to, devoted to Christ. When it comes to salvation, God wants everyone to come. But when it comes to discipleship, he wants only those who are willing to pay the price. Jesus was not impressed by great crowds that followed him because he knew their hearts. He knew he was on his way to the cross to Jerusalem. He knew that. But the crowds were not ready for that. It is easy to be in the crowd, but not so easy to be a disciple of the carry the cross. So he that comes to me and does not love his father less than he loves me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying hate your family. What he's saying is he's got to be first. We are not we are not at liberty to hate our parents. This would be, you know, contrary to scripture, you know, but we are to love them less than we do Christ. We are to obey Christ rather than them. We are to be willing to forsake them. If God calls us to do that, we are to be willing to forsake them to preach the gospel. We are to submit to Christ without complaint. The priority of discipleship, Jesus stressed the need for total commitment. And we must count the cost before making that commitment. Discipleship is not easy. Peter said one time, see, we are left all to follow you. What are we going to get? 
You know, Peter, he's going to speak his mind. He's going he gonna to tell you what's up. He's going to speak his mind. He said, now we don't left everything. What are we going to get? So Jesus answered and said to him, surely I say to you that in this generation, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you have followed me, will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the nation and the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, a brothers, a sister, a father, a mother, a children, a land for my sake. You did it for his sake. You didn't do it for your sake. Shall be a shall receive a hundredfold, he said. A hundredfold. You didn't do it for your sake. You did it for his sake. And inherit eternal life. That's what he said. Many who are first will be last, and last will be first. It might be first in this life and last in the next one. You know, the, the one I like is just, I close with this last scripture, because I like this over and over. Hebrews 6.10, you know it. For God is not unjust to forget your work. And labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You think God is going to forget that? Do you think that anything that you do do for Christ, that God is going to forget that? He said he's going to, re he's going to reward it a hundredfold. A hundredfold. I'm not giving the gift, but it's just what the scripture said. If you serve Christ, he's not going to be in your debt. He's going to say, well done, man. Good and faithful servant. Here's a hundredfold. I'll take it. Hundredfold. So what you're doing here for Christ is going to last throughout an eternity. What you give, the way you serve, your finances, your life, whatever you do for the glory of God, it's going to last throughout eternity. Can you imagine that? I know I'm going to get to heaven and say, boy, I wish I had given more. <laughs> if I knew heaven was this pretty, boy, I would have gave, I would have served more. I would have given more. I would have done more. A hundredfold. Can you imagine that God is going to forget anything that you do for him? That's why I do it, man. I do it. For, I don't do it to get, but I do it. I know that one day that God is going to reward everything that we do. And I don't deserve anything, but God is going to reward us for it. So what you're doing now is not in vain. The money you give to the church, we give to uh, missionaries who go out and preach the gospel and people get saved. That means you are part of that. You are a part of that because missionaries need finances to preach the gospel. The gospel doesn't cost anything. The gospel is free, but it takes money to get the gospel to Africa, or India. Missionaries need support. So we support over 15 percent over your money. When people have a disaster like Samaritan's Purse, tornadoes, earthquakes, we send money. The money comes back, we send it again. The money comes back, we send it out again. You, because God is saying, you know what? I don't need your money. I'm just going to see. I've trusted you. I'm going to see what you're going to do. I'm going to see if you're going to help people. If you help people, I reward you for it. And God rewards us for it. For a small church, I think, I think we're very giving for a small church. We support like over 15% comes in, goes out to mission. People say, why don't you just tear this building down and build a new building? The answer is no. 
Don't need a new building. We need to get this gospel out. We got to leave this building and everything behind, man. Because the Lord is coming. And we're in the last days right now. So if you know of anybody, friends, relatives, unsaved people that don't know Christ, I pray that you would invite them into the kingdom. Because the time is running out and we don't know how much time we got left. But you can look around this world and you can see something is up. God is up to something. He's not somewhere asleep. He's working it out for his glory. So let's have compassion on the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for you, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. Father, we thank you that we can come and hear your word today. I just pray that anyone here that does not know you, that they would come to Christ today. Lord, that they would be saved. That they would be forgiven from their, for their sins. This could be their last chance. We ask you to convict them now and draw them to you. Is there anyone here that would like to receive Christ? Just All you have to do is just come admit that you are a sinner. Ask Christ to come into your heart, forgive you of your sins. And he's never turned down anyone yet, anyone here. Okay, let's stand.